Hello, welcome to The Wire, where you can get independent coverage of current affairs on your local community radio station, wherever you are, right around Australia. I'm Roderick Chambers in Sydney, and coming up on The Wire today... It was a very important meeting because we expanded the number of countries which are now uh, committed to working on the implementation of the peace formula, the peace formula which was introduced by President Zelensky last year, which includes 10 important items which need to be implemented. Ukraine peace talks in Malta have endorsed a plan by President Vladimir Zelensky for peace in the war with 66 countries participating, albeit without Russia and Belarus. Stay tuned for more here on The Wire. But first, David Devash is a farmer on the northern rivers of New South Wales. But many years ago, he was also a soldier in the Israeli army as a 19-year-old in the Yom Kippur War. This war was a surprise attack simultaneously by Egypt and Syria on Israel on the 6th of October 1973. I asked him what was his memory of that day. Oh, mate, it was... Uh, that's a, Ironically, it was on the 6th of October, 50 years ago. I was a uh, 19 and a half years old uh, soldier. And uh, yeah, I remember that was also on Saturday, midday actually, the, the war started. And we were surprised. The, wars, the war was taking place on both fronts and the northern part in Syria and the southern part in Sinai against the Egyptian army. I was in the south. The, the feeling must have been that this is a war for the existence of the country. Yeah, it was. That was the feeling back then, and yet there is a there is a, quite a difference between what happened on the seventh of uh, October, uh, three weeks ago. Back then, we fought against armies. We, we fought soldiers against soldiers. No civilians were involved. Tough war, lasted nineteen days. At the end of the war, I found, I found myself on the other side of the Suez Canal and the Egyptian city of Ismailia. Uh, Israel changed after this war, but we gained something really important. That was uh, five or six years later, Israel signed a peace treaty with uh, Egypt. So that might uh, be the positive result of that war, the current war that uh, launched uh, just three and a half weeks ago is by far more traumatic. It's probably, in my opinion, the most traumatic day in the history of the state of Israel. What feels different about this conflict then? Um, We're underlined with one emotion, and that was fear. We went to wars because of fear, we won the wars because of fear. We, we occupied land because of fear. We still occupying lands because of fear. And the 7th of October, three and a half weeks ago, this fear was materialized for the first time. We had a taste, the real taste 
of what would happen to the state of Israel if this state will ever lose a war. We can win one war, we can win the second war, we can win 20 of them, but if we lose one, what happened to our civilian people, women, children, old people in the south of Israel will happen to the entire country. And we're talking about 7 million people, 7 million Jews in a country that has 9 million. Among them, about 1.8 Muslims, Palestinians, Israelis. And um, with... Um... So everyone uh, in Israel would probably feel this, wouldn't they? Uh, every every Jewish person in Israel. I think this is this is actually the the, the overall feeling is that uh, uh, made everything that we are, were afraid of actually happen in front of our eyes. We need the Nelson Mandela. We're waiting for it. The Israelis are striving for it, praying for it, wishing them to come to us and say, all right, we have facts on the ground. We have, seven, we have seven million of you guys. We have to live with that. You have to live with that. Let's come to a compromise. That's the only bloody solution. Going in historical injustice, both sides have plenty of claims. None of them is relevant. Relevant is the now. Find the voice of peace. David Devash, farmer from the northern rivers of New South Wales and a former IDF soldier speaking with me there. Action Collective and Tamil Diaspora Association of Queensland marched through the streets of Brisbane on Sunday, calling on the government to grant refugees permanent visas. Many of the refugees have been in Australia for up to 13 years on rolling three-month bridging visas, which means they can't get steady work, housing or Medicare. They say they can't go back to their countries of origin because it's still too dangerous. Netta Finney spoke with some of the speakers at the rally. My name is Sudesh Somu and I come from a Tamil Sri Lankan descent. I'm a member of Tamil Diaspora Association of Queensland. I came to Australia in 2012. I had to escape Sri Lanka with my mom and dad due to persecution. We had to embark on a very dangerous ocean journey of 18 days. In all honesty, I actually didn't even know where I was going at that time because I was quite young and, uh, and it was Australia and uh, when, when I came here we were detained. I was taken into the offshore processing centres of Manus Island and I was there for about eight months. Yeah, and then I was released into the community the following year to Brisbane and I have lived in Brisbane ever since. You've been in Australia for 11 years now. What's, your, what's the life been like for your family since you've been here? 
Life's been, if I'm being honest, Australia has been amazing. I, I feel safe here. I've never felt this safe in my life before. I don't feel like I'm threatened or, you know, somebody's going to hurt me. I can fully contribute. I went to school here. I went and did my education. I did my certificates and diploma in uh, child youth family intervention. I work with indigenous people. Mum and dad, they are well contributing members of the society as well. And all we ask now is for the government to grant us a permanent security in this country with permanent residency. So what sort of visas do you, you and your family have at the moment? Currently we have bridging visas and we have been on this bridging visa for literally well over a decade and there was also a period where our bridging visas had expired and we tried to apply for it and we didn't have rights to apply for it. I'm Gami, I'm from Sri Lanka. Um, me and husband arriving by board in 2012 in Australia. Still we have a, just a temporary bridging visa and then, and then I have a two kids, they're born here. Then my son's turned 10 years old so he can be an Australian citizen but my daughter is still in like she don't have Medicare or bridging visa or nothing. She just living with us. What do you and your husband have now? My husband working at the HCA. I'm working at the Woolies, but I finished my individual support HCA course, but I couldn't get a job because they're renewing every three months the visa, so I couldn't get any job from anywhere. And you were saying before you've spent quite a lot of money going through the courts, is that right? Yeah, in, in 12 years we just went through all the courts and everything and the lawyer fees, uh, we changing the lawyers and then fees and everything. We're spending more than $60,000 to stay here. So how does that make you feel, all that work you've put into this and not knowing whether you can stay or go? It's terrible. It's mentally upset. I don't, I don't want to do anything because it's, it's, it's a mental torture. My name's Jonathan Sri Ranganathan. I'm the Greens candidate for Mayor of Brisbane. I think it's ridiculous that families who've been living in the Australian community for well over a decade now still don't have permanent visas and still don't have any pathway to citizenship. I've heard today from kids who are finishing high school and they just want to go to university but they're not able to do so. I've heard from families who aren't eligible to access Medicare. So people are part of our community, they're living here in Brisbane but they have no permanent status and that makes it harder to secure job opportunities, it makes it harder to put down roots and plan for the future. You have personal links to the Tamil community, can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, so my father's a Tamil man, he came from Sri Lanka when the civil war was first starting up and he was lucky enough to get um, permanent visa here and is settled and is a citizen and I've grown up here but for other Tamils who've come later it's a really hard road. People have survived decades of civil war, they've survived dangerous journeys to Australia by boat and then they've survived offshore detention centres and now finally they're here in the Australian community and they just want an end to that uncertainty and they want to get on with their lives. Greens candidate for Lord Mayor of Brisbane, Jonathan Sri Ranganathan speaking with Neda Finney. Minister of Immigration, Citizenship and Multicultural Affairs, Anthony Giles, gave us this statement. Those with new credible protection claims relating to changes in their country of origin or personal circumstances may request ministerial intervention. Applicants who do not engage protection obligations and have exhausted all avenues to remain in Australia are expected to depart Australia voluntarily and may be provided assistance to depart.
Meanwhile, in Ukraine, the war grinds on. Some hope rests in a peace process started by President Vladimir Zelensky, which resulted in a meeting in Malta of 66 countries. I asked the Ukraine ambassador to Australia, Mr Vasil Masrenchenko, how the talks went in Malta. It was a very important meeting because we expanded the number of countries which are now uh, committed to working on the implementation of the peace formula, the peace formula which was introduced by President Zelensky last year, which includes 10 important items which need to be implemented in order to achieve a long-lasting and just peace uh, for Ukraine. Now, we didn't have Russia and uh, Belarus involved. That, that's a bit of a... You really do need them involved, don't you, with any sort of a peace deal? At this stage, we are working on creating the, the bigger coalition in support of Ukraine. And uh, Russia, as a country which is an aggressor, is not invited to this meeting at this stage. And China was also invited, I understand, but they didn't uh, appear either. China participated in a meeting which took place in Jeddah in uh, Saudi Arabia uh, in uh, August. And it was a very important uh, participation that China made. And uh, also at that time and, and later on, we had participation from Brazil and South Africa and other countries involved. So can you explain what the, the, the process that Vladimir Zelensky has uh, set out is? Uh, it's a process of, of, uh, of a peace formula. Uh, which is um, uh, the 10 points which um, are offered for implementation. The first of them is, of course, they're, they're renewing their respect to the UN Charter. Uh, also, that involves issues such as food security, energy security, the issues of the ecocide, also keeping Russia accountable for the war crimes committed in Ukraine. Um, there are also items related to creating a mechanism on how Russia will pay for the destruction made in Ukraine. So there are different tracks and at different levels. So there is a track which is happening at the level of the national security advisors and chief foreign policy advisors to different heads of states. And that was the meeting in Malta, which took place. But also there is a level and the preparation for a bigger summit, which will in involve country leaders and may take place sometime uh, next year. There's been a, a number of operations in the Black Sea, and this is very important for Ukraine because of the gateway for exports. How is that going? Uh, is, uh, is Ukraine getting the access it needs to overseas markets? Ukraine uh, currently is having limited access to the overseas markets. Uh, we've been able to overcome the obstacles uh, which have been imposed by Russia's uh, fleet and the blockade of the export. Russia has exited this deal in July. Nevertheless, we were able to push the Russian uh, Black Sea Navy from the western part of the Black Sea to the eastern part of Ukraine uh, to the Black Sea. And actually, that also has helped uh, to uh, temporarily or at least uh, partially uh, relieve the transport routes uh, for the export of the Ukrainian uh, grain uh, to the global markets. Uh, as I'm aware, as of last July, over 30 different vessels have left Black Sea ports and been delivering uh, that grain uh, to the Middle East and Africa, many countries which are in dire need of these food products. And Ukraine was one of the biggest suppliers and contributed to the global food security. The, you, you mentioned the Middle East, and it's hard not to mention it at the moment. Uh, this conflict with Gaza and Israel is 
taking a lot of the world's media attention. The US Congress is concerned about having conflict in the Middle East and also a conflict in Europe. How do you feel this is going to affect your war effort in Ukraine? If you look at the military element of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, it's on, ongoing, it's happening as we speak. It didn't really have any impact. Of course, uh, Ukraine has uh, condemned the uh, heinous attacks against the civilians in Israel. And um, uh, we believe that uh, it's uh, Hamas is not really helping the Palestinian cause. At the same time, we uh, support the peaceful resolution of the conflict in the Middle East, and we support uh, a two-state um, solution uh, for that for that for that uh, problem. Um, as you have pointed out, um, now uh, the uh, Middle East is in the headlines, and uh, we it's true, and it's just the nature of what is happening, and perhaps Russia is. Uh, expecting that the involvement of Israel and its Western allies in a grueling and bloody conflict will ease the pressure on it for the aggression against Ukraine. We know that also Hamas uh, was hosted in Russia, and Russia was the only country which hosted some Hamas following the October 7th uh, attacks against the Israeli civilians. And we see the benefit that Russia is gaining out of it, and um, uh, that's, uh, that's kind of a reality uh, we have to operate in. The Ukraine ambassador to Australia, Vassil Mastranchenko, speaking with me there. I'm Roderick Chambers, and this is The Wire around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Today, bulk billing incentives for general practitioners have tripled. When bulk billing concession card holders, pensioners, children under 16, GPs are now eligible for up to three times their current Medicare payment in metropolitan areas or more in rural areas. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese addressed the new bulk billing incentives at a press conference this morning in this story from Stephen Samaras. Now, today we're making it easier and cheaper for more than 11 million Australians to see a doctor. This is the biggest investment in Medicare bulk billing in 40 years. And later, later this week, uh, I will, on, on Friday, I'll be attending uh, the memorial service, the, the uh, funeral of uh, the late Bill Hayden. Bill Hayden deserves credit for so much of what he did in public life, but nothing more so than what he did as uh, a minister in the Whitlam government of introducing Medibank. I noticed that uh, some in the coalition uh, seem to not understand their history because they've gone out and said how fantastic it is, the bipartisan support for that. Of course, the Fraser government abolished it uh, when they came in and it took the election of the Hawke government uh, where Bill Hayden, of course, was the foreign minister to reinstitute Medicare and John Howard went to elections promising to trash it and to get rid of it. 
Prime Minister Albanese would then go on to credit the history of the party's Medicare legislation and condemn the opposition's attempt to claim this reform was born of bipartisan support. This was not a bipartisan thing. This was a Labor initiative. Bill Hayden deserves absolute credit uh, for the work that he did and the Hawke government deserves credit for entrenching this uh, as part of the system. Uh, But we know, of course, that the leader of the opposition, uh, Peter Dutton, when he was health minister during that disastrous period where he was regarded as the worst ever health minister, uh, tried to get rid of bulk billing effectively with his co-payment, which would have abolished the idea right here that people who are patients here at this wonderful facility can see a doctor for free. Prime Minister Albanese would also explain the goals Labor government is hoping to achieve with this reform, mainly in providing incentive facilities to continue to bulk bill and incentivise more GPs around the country to begin or continue bulk billing. We think that it will have a very positive impact in two ways. One is it will encourage uh, facilities like this to continue to bulk bill, but secondly as well, it will provide uh, an incentive uh, for more, more bulk billing Uh, from doctors uh, right around the country, and that's what we want to see. The Australian Medical Association was campaigning for this kind of reform when it was announced as part of the federal budget in May of this year. I spoke with AMA Vice President Dr Danielle McMullen about the importance of this reform. So why are these bulk billing incentives so important? So uh, as the, the health minister and government have outlined today in all of their media, general practice has fallen behind for many decades in terms of the funding available to patients to be able to see a GP. So from today, kids under 16, concession card holders and pensioners, when their GP chooses to bulk bill that consultation, the GP will get an extra incentive. And we really hope that that helps GPs make the decision to be able to bulk bill their most vulnerable patients uh, and therefore making it easier to see a GP affordably. Is this just a first step for Medicare reform? Yeah, it really is just a first step for reform. Doctors groups, patient groups and the government all agree that a lot needs to be done to make it easier to see a GP and get that wraparound care that you need. This is a big funding injection, but it's just the first step and there's lots of work happening with things like My Medicare enrolment, but also looking at the Medicare system more broadly to make sure that over the next few years, we're making it easier to see a GP. How remote is remote? Does it mean just regional or rural? Yeah, so the the bulk billing incentive changes are different depending on what part of Australia you live in. Uh, In the most urban areas, so our city centres, it'll be an incentive of about $20. But in our most remote areas, and by that we do mean really tiny towns uh, out in really rural Australia, uh, it goes to about $39. And there's something in between for everyone else. So here in, in Townsville, in a regional centre, it's slightly more than the $20, but it's certainly not up at the 39 Could this incentive be rolled out for all Medicare eligible people or will it just stay for concession cards holders and uh, vulnerable patients? 
The bulk billing incentive item only applies to people with a concession card or a pension card or kids under the age of 16. And that was a that's a long-standing policy and the reason government has chosen that to focus the increase on is to make sure that our most vulnerable patients are, are helped out first. Uh, but certainly we know that other groups are struggling as well. And with the cost of living crisis, even people without a concession card are really struggling to pay the bills. And so we are continuing work with government to make Medicare better funded all around uh, so that even people without concession cards have better access to the healthcare that they need. What would the next steps be for the AMA and the government to continue reforming Medicare? So next steps are things like putting in place uh, My Medicare enrolments and the packages of funding that could come out of that to better provide wraparound care to patients. But also next year, we're looking at the GP rebate and how general practice is structured to see whether we can better tailor Medicare to people who need more time with their GP in particular. So people with chronic disease or complex health problems, we know at the moment that those longer consultations, the rebate is particularly poor. Uh, And so as an AMA, we'll be working with government to try and improve that. Australian Medical Association Vice President Dr Danielle McMullen speaking there with Stephen Samaras. And that's it for The Wire today. You can find all of our stories online at thewire.org.au or subscribe to our podcasts. Just look for The Wire Radio. Today's program came from the studios of Radio 2 SER 107.3 here in Sydney and broadcast around the nation on the Community Radio Network. In Sydney, The Wire is produced on Gadigal Country of the Eora Nation and with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We're going to be back again tomorrow, so do tune in again then. I'm Roderick Chambers. Do stay well and thanks for your company. Music.